Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's topic of the week. My name is Alec, and we have Joshua Cheatham on the line as well. Uh, for today's topic of the week episode, we're going to go be going into depth uh, into kind of a concept slash thing that already exists. But we're gonna we're gonna be a little creative this episode, and and what we're thinking of is the U.S.'s version of the Belts and Road Initiative. So for the Belts and Road Initiative, for those who may know, is a Chinese initiative to um, simply push investment uh, into other countries. Um, Chinese have invested um, a lot of money into infrastructure in Africa, countries in Asia and Latin America to use it as a hand of influence into these different countries and kind of get access to resources, but also spread Chinese influence as well to improve their their soft power um, around the world. So. And what one thing that the United States is good at is our hard power. And hard power is referring to things like military technology and showing, uh, flexing our muscles essentially around the world. But where the U.S. can improve, and which is soft power, uh, the United States does flex our muscles a little too much on the hard power side, which we end up being the world's policing power. But why can't we be kind of the... Um, center for for economic investments which we are i'm not saying we aren't but we can flex more of our soft power muscle uh around the world yeah absolutely and so you know the chinese when they created their version of the silk road uh which is an ancient you know trade route between europe uh parts of africa uh they we're really, like Alex said, envisioning a Chinese-influenced world where they were the ones taking down the dominant West. They were the ones putting their first foot forward, and they were the ones that everyone was going to turn to. And so that is what their goal, their investments uh, included over $1 trillion, over 3,000 3, um, infrastructure projects. Which, by the way, is on par with the World Bank. And if I were the World Bank, I'd be kind of embarrassed considering China is one country. And the World Bank is multiple countries investing in it. Uh, but investments include ports, roads, train systems, energy, telecommunications, and trade routes. Um, they were looked to from a lot of third world countries as like, oh, this is great. Someone's actually investing in us today. Someone's giving a crap about us. But the reality is, is that China exploited many of these countries, especially the ones in Africa, leaving them in billions of dollars worth of debt. And what we've definitely said many times in the word and the, the coined phrase of debt trap diplomacy. And so, yeah, like Alex said, we're here to envision the United States' own version, uh, which can also include Western countries, in investing in the rest of the world. But just to, to throw out some investments that the United States is already doing in terms of numbers, and Alec has more than I do on this information, but $6 billion has been invested in Africa. $3 billion has been invested just this, in 2022. Uh, 2023, sorry. $3 billion has been invested in Latin America. Um, and there wasn't any data on, on Asian countries, but the specific island nations uh, post the G20 summit and the summit at the White House with the Pacific Island nations $812 million has been invested in those nations. To be compared, though, to the $160 billion that was just recently uh, proposed by the Biden administration to be sent out an aid package to Ukraine and Israel. And I'm not 
trying to put out that this is bad. We obviously should be sending our military support in terms of uh, for especially Ukraine, but also supporting an aid towards the people of Gaza and Israel that have been affected by the conflict. But what I'm saying is that the funds should be more evenly distributed because there are people in conflict throughout the world. There are also people who need aid throughout the world. And the United States needs to be kind of that that four bearer that helps out with what the world is doing. And that kind of goes into my first first point, um, which is in order to kind of create our own Belt and Road Initiative is is a strengthening of, of these international institutions. Um, and it's kind of a great segue into this conversation. Um, the first step is not to actually go in and invest, but to before we do all that, we need to we need to have the system in place to support um, these these kind of activities. We we've seen multiple times where the these international institutions like the United Nations and and other other organizations have not been as effective. Uh, I can argue that the World Trade Organization has been more effective. Uh, kind of peace. Um, to to the international community and in dealing with trade disputes around the world that happen and serving as a mediator, um, that I believe is the kind of the only international UN related organization that I think is is uh, is good. I, the World Bank is is decent as well. They're good at providing um, poorer regions the the investment and the loans they need to kind of develop. Um, but the one thing I do say that the World Bank needs to adjust is kind of where the poverty level uh, is is measured because they take the average of the country. So you can have a really rich person um, just inflate that average by the actual average. And, and it kind of reduces the amount the World Bank um, provides for a country, uh, a business or whatever it is, because the World Bank can offer uh, country loans. Uh, to the government or to businesses within a country uh, down to the grassroots level almost. And the, the issue with the World Bank is how they measure poverty. Um, it just takes a few rich people to inflate that number within a country, a few corrupt uh, politicians and uh, the amount a country receives is low. But uh, but the World Bank, they're, I would they I would I would give them a good rating uh, to but the, the, a lot more work needs to be done at the international level international institutions to support um, a I, I don't want to say a Western version uh, of the Belt and Road Initiative I, we need a global um, kind of Belt and Road Initiative that can be spearheaded by the United States because of how much funding because we are kind of essentially the sole. Um, biggest investor um, in these international institutions. That's not to say other countries have not been uh, as involved. Each country equally holds uh, weight in the United Nations. So, but the United States really is biggest focus is to counter the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which has been proven that it has not worked. And people have seen that it was good on paper, but in reality it was a, a, a big lie. Yeah. And all those banks are um, going to default on their debt very soon, which is why the Chinese economy is uh, it, not is going to fail, but is um, on the brinks of failure. Uh, and, and a lot of people are afraid of that. But anywho, moving moving on from that, the United States uh, has a big issue with not understanding how to budget and move funds correctly, uh, overcompensating for funds. Uh, in a sense. Yeah. And we also overcompensate for funds on the international scale. But so the United States has given $160 billion or is going, uh, has requested 
Joe Biden and the White House requested $160 billion in funds to be moved to Israel and Ukraine. 140 of those billion is going to be strictly for Israel. $20 billion is going to be added on to the already $100 billion we've already spent in Ukraine. And this is where I have an, a big major issue for the United States, because what the United States is looking at the, the short-run investment. Now, you know, if you talk to anybody who you know, I, I, I'm very pro-military, I'm pro-understanding and flexing our muscles. I understand the need to invest in Ukraine and the war, but we've spent so much money on that war. Why can't we have other countries within the EU help pick up the slack on that investment and work to invest in that country? And also, why isn't the United States trying to use more of its money to invest in other countries? Six billion dollars is being sent to aid and, and infrastructure to the entire 55, 50, or 54 countries of Africa. That's like giving a fraction. That's like going up to somebody and, and saying, hey, I want to pay you for 40 hours of work this week, but I'm only going to give you $10. That's, that's basically the equivalent of what, you're, what they're giving to Africa. Because $6 billion wouldn't cover remodeling the infrastructure for the state of Texas in the United States. So that is, is, is a fault. And it's the same in South America, $3 billion. I mean, how, how, how can you justify that? There's uh, in South and Central America, there's over, I think, 30 countries. You can't justify it. And, and so the United States needs to really reconsider where it's investing its money and understand that, yeah, they're putting up a lot of upfront costs right now. But in the long run, investing in these communities to get their natural resources, to get their future trade, and also seeing a future of stability within Africa is going to far outweigh these costs up front because right now we're spending so much money on defense. And it's going to be continue spending money on defense because we're not solving the root issue of the problem which is money. Nobody has money in those countries, and also they don't have a government. And unfortunately, you need money to govern. That's just facts. <laughs> like, you need money Absolutely. to govern. So, yeah. You can't do anything without it. And, and it's it's just the world we live in. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about a grassroots approach, which is what this sort of Belt and Road Initiative of the United States' version should be, which is a grassroots-level approach uh, to all countries uh, around the world, too. As you said, these, these types of issues stem from lack of, lack of an economy, lack of governmental structure, no, no jobs for the people, people to partake in. So if there's no jobs, if there's no judiciary, stable judiciary system, there's no government, people are going to resort to conflict, to, to finding new, new ways to, to make money uh, illegal in the majority of the cases. And the United States can solve a lot of problems. They're not maybe going to solve all of them because of, again, geopolitical uh, ideologies and believing. And for example, if the United States were to pour money and invest it in Ukraine, Russia would still be would still want to take uh, Ukraine, but it can mitigate. Um, it can mitigate a chance of a. What I'm envisioning is, should the United States had invested lots of money into improving the corruption problems in Ukraine um, to investing in, in uh, its agriculture. Russia may not have been as, you know, 
kind of wanting to to invade Ukraine because now there's U.S. influence within Ukraine and that'd be very dangerous. Um, so it's kind of like that that weight of U.S. investment in these countries. And not only will that solve geopolitical stuff, but also you take a grassroots approach and you're providing people jobs, you're providing people money, money is circulating. You don't got to worry about that. It's uh, about that location uh, until some issue pops up where the U.S. and other partners of the United States can can go in there and solve disputes diplomatically. And with the, the what I'm thinking is is like with with the new Ecuadorian president, he has a big influence in bananas, right? Why can't the United States step in and say, "Hey, listen, I know you have uh, 180 days." Um, Here's what we could do uh, to help you out, to get banana exports out, agricultural exports out. Let's help fix your constitution. Let's get rid of these cartel problems. The drug problem in the United States can be, can be, and I don't want to make this as a, as a kind of like a, a simple problem to fix, which is not. But the first step is to invest lots of money into these countries. And that's what Latin America is, uh, that's what China is doing in Latin America. Yeah. And the... The other course that the, in terms of what the United States and the West needs to do is prove that they are going to be better than what China is. Because the problem is now is that China's come in and they're like, oh, they're they, they taking advantage of us. Their infrastructure sucks. It, it, it's breaking. It's cracking. It's cheap. Uh, we have horrible telecommunications. We're in billions of dollars of debt. What? We're not going to trust anybody. And the United States, what the United States needs to do is say, we see what you're saying. We understand that the Chinese absolutely exploited you, and it was horrible what they did. But we have proof that we can do better. It's called the Marshall Plan. Post-World War II, let's just put this in perspective. 70, uh, how many years ago is it now? Over 75 years ago now. World, Europe, and and Japan were decimated. Like there were no roads, there were no buildings. There was nothing there because it was decimated by the most gruesome war this world has ever seen. You would not be able to know that there is a war now. You wouldn't have been able to know that there was a war just twenty something years later. Because of the effectiveness of the Marshall Plan that the United States led to rebuild Europe and also help rebuild Japan. You would have no idea. And the United States needs to put that focus on, look at what we did after a war. You guys, we're going into a lot of African countries where there is no war. They, they just need, there's, there's nothing there, essentially. They need to go there and say, this is a blank, this is a clean slate. This is a blanket statement. We can go in there and just you, whatever you want, we can do. We don't got to rebuild. You know, you want the nicest, newest bridges and newest telecommunication systems and financial banks. We can help you out with that. This is a blank slate. And that is what the United States needs to show. They need to say, look what we did during war times with a decimated country. The decimated countries. What, what can you think we can do with your country now with hundreds of, with trillions of dollars more money? Trillions of dollars and more manpower. And what I want to add on that, going back to the trust thing, right? The United States has not been so kind of 
countries have seen the United States and they they've been a little hesitant because of our our bureaucracies. Uh, I'm gonna quote. I'm gonna look at USAID for example, right? When you delegate a task to the US, to USAID, and I'm not trying to say anything bad about the USAID. Uh, USAID is good because they have the the knowledge and the expertise for all things development work. But one thing they suck at is money. Uh, they are terrible with how they use money. Um, if you give money to USAID, they will use it to spend uh, to cover their debts that they have. Um, and USAID, it's no fault of their own because they can find ways to to make the development work cheaper. The problem is that the government does not allow these bureaucracies to source things more locally. That all, any investment that goes on has to be brought by the by America. They need to be American products, American services, and American boots on the ground to go and fix and invest into these countries. And USAID is kind of limited because of that and because they suck at budgeting. So it's kind of like a a, a, a knife with, with two edges here. Um, so that's kind of where trust issues stem from is the inability for these bureaucracies to work properly. Yeah. Um, that relate to, to international development. So the, if, the, if we're going to build trust, it's taking a step back and looking at our bureaucracies and saying this is just not it. When we, when we pledge, when the United States pledges to give money to other countries, it should be direct, bank to bank, bank to person, bank to business, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense because you know, we're, we're, you're talking about bureaucracy, and that's a big problem because of the agencies and how they use their funds and how they're uh, just not correctly using their discretionary funds. We also have to think about how could people trust the United States with this current political climate that we're living in. Uh, as of this recording on 1025, <laughs> we have just received the Speaker of the House for the first time in three weeks. We have the most politically divided government in history. With the United States since the Civil War. And so how is a country going to trust that the U.S. is going to even give them aid in the first place? I mean, let alone that the USAID gets that money and what they do with it. Now we have to think about, is USAID going to get the money at all? That's the other, that's that's the new issue that the, the world is having to deal with. And we discussed this last week on, a, on our topic of the week is uh, how American pol- uh, polarization is affecting the uh, international community. Well, this is exactly when we're talking about a Belt and Road Initiative. The United States can't do it without figuring out their internal politics. Because, in my opinion, there are there are a few things that the the U.S. government and both sides should not uh, have a partisan view. And and one of those things that it should be bipartisan is forward direct investment. That should be a nonpartisan issue because the benefits of investing in the in countries like in Latin America, like well, when Venezuela becomes a democracy, hopefully one day, like Venezuela, like Ecuador, like uh, Nigeria and South Africa, oil rich countries and, and, and resource rich countries, those benefits are much higher and deserve to be to take, we should we just have to have take the brunt in the upfront costs to get the benefits after a couple of years and so that's where i think 
the U.S. going that th- this whole Belt Road initiative is going to be very difficult. It's obviously a concept that we're discussing, but you know we want to bring up the obvious, obviously the the, the the cons of what can happen because th- that unfortunately nowadays is a con. If you would have said 20 years ago, can the U.S. invest foreignly and have no issues under the Bush administration, under the Biden administration, even under the beginning of the Trump, the first half of the Trump administration, I would have told you, no problem. U.S. is going to do it. But towards the second half of the Trump administration, this Biden administration, this new Congress, the 118th Congress, absolutely no way can we get aid out in an efficient manner. I, I totally agree. Um uh, the one thing I do want to talk about now is kind of like what the United States has been doing that's been effective and where we need to build on. The one thing the United States is has been doing is they have been you know, investing. They've been well, they've been planning um, to create you know, new investments and new corridors. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, IMEC, which is the kind of new um the United States wanting to connect India, the Arab Gulf, Europe, uh, and the Lobito Corridor in Africa through railways and shipping lines um, to um, kind of reduce uh, reliance on China for minerals and respond uh, to um, kind of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. And this is this is a fantastic step in the right direction. This came from last month's G20 summit. Um, and we're talking about it now again because this is the type of things that we need to see more of. Um, another thing I want to talk about is USMCA. Um, China, uh, U.S.-China trade has been uh, overtaken by U.S.-Mexico trade, and Mexico is the biggest trading partner of the United States. Um, so, and in Africa, they have back in towards the tail end of 2022, uh, they plan to commit another 55 billion to Africa over the next three years. Um, so, where you have investments all over the world. The issue is we suck at connecting everything to make one network. We have we have things here, we have things there, we have things over there, over beyond yonder, but we don't we don't connect it. There's too much bureaucratic red tape. The United States can't even figure out its own problems within. So we we, we have the tools and we have the the mindset and we have the the plans to do it. I mean, look at IMEC, for example. There's been no actual finance behind it. There's been no balance sheet on how it's going to get done. It's just we say things, we invest, but then I would say like more than half of that money is never even seen yeah, again. No, and, and that, that brings back to the point is how can you trust the U.S.? Because as president, President Biden is not a, a technical legislator. He does not have the power to approve uh, or to push legislation. I mean, he he has the the power to introduce it, but he cannot. Oh, he can't prove it until mm-hmm. it's gone through Congress, and so he has to go tell India and the rest of the countries in the IMAC that this is what we want to do. These are the funds that we want to have. This is the plan, and the United States is going to promise this. But the reality is, the United States can't promise this. What? The reality is Joe Biden has to fly back to the United States, go to the Speaker of the House to get this funding, these appropriations introduced to the floor and pray to the gods above that it gets passed. That's that's the reality of it. And, And in this political climate, a bill like that that would seemingly benefit the United States and our workers tenfold would likely get struck down in this this Congress. And so. 
that is the biggest issue in trust for the U.S. And you're right; those are all great initiatives. The USMCA uh, that was authored by uh, the Trump administration, absolutely brilliant trade agreement. And I think IMAC is a brilliant proposal, and it is going to help the United States and benefit the rest of the world. And you're right; is the version of the Western Belt and uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative we've been looking for. But I, I hate to say this and be that 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 Debbie Downer, but the reality of the IMAC actually becoming something that the U.S. participates in is very, very slim at this moment in time. And I think we need these countries that, uh, for example, like India, um, Europe, um, Arabic, uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, MENA countries, even, to say, listen, you promised us this. We wanted to get it done. So there kind of needs to be a check on the United States. But if there is no check on the United States, then what's not to say, okay, well, if you don't want to work with us, then we'll just continue working with China until you figure it out. So there needs to be some sort of check on the United States where we, where these countries say, you promised us this, and let's get it done. There's been no legal binding kind of piece to this. They've just announced that they're going to work on something like this, but I don't, I have not seen any, any sort of real progress um, lately. Um, and if anyone has seen real progress, then please forward it to us, and we want to see because I have not, in my research, seen any kind of forward-moving progress. And, and and with the Israel-Palestine problem, it's kind of caused a lot of uh, backwards moving. Um, so the the first step really is to to get IMEC going is to to see what the United States is going to do about um, Israel and Palestine. And sending in two carriers is just not it's just not going to be it. What what message are they are they sending to these Middle Eastern countries that the United States wants yeah, to work with? Yeah, it's not it's not a great message to be honest. And especially after Saudi Arabia was trying to broker a deal to recognize Israel, it would have been the fifth country in the Middle East to recognize Israel. And not only the fifth country, but the largest of the Middle Eastern uh countries in terms of GDP and influence. Um, yeah, the, the, this is like we were saying a concept, but it's a very difficult concept. It's something the United States could do for sure. It's something the United States needs to focus on to build a plan on. I, I, I totally think in the future, um, and, and we need to sort out our own politics first, but there's a lot of roadblocks in the, in the way. And so what's going to the likely end up happening in the next few years is just continued conflicts, and that's that's a sad reality. And I think another way we're we're going to address it, um, to to first step to to kind of Middle Eastern um mm-hmm. investment is is with Israel. Um, Israel's far right government is just not good for Middle Eastern development. And what the United States should do is instead of printing out money and and giving it to Israel to say, listen, uh, we want you to use this money for for development and working with uh, your neighbors. Um, and if you're not going to work with your neighbors and if you're not going to invest and build and help be a part of Middle Eastern development, we're going to withhold this, the, these loans and grants from you. Um, it's, it's, it will kind of go against um, United States' uh, Israel's uh, kind of the United States' U.S.-Israel stance. But we live in a time and place where, where these uh, more economic investment should be taking priority. Um, and the United States should be investing in places like like Palestine as well. If they could solve the two state solution, this would also help with their belt, with their kind of own 
version of the Belt and Road Initiative to, to show that the United States' initiative can not only go beyond um, economic issues, but we can also solve geopolitical issues with exactly. money, which is weird to say, but Listen, it's... It, it, it's <laughs> the, the, the reason Europe is not at war right now, money... I mean, that's just that, like they—they would—they've been to war how many times? It's how many times in history? But when the EU was formed post World War II, I mean, how can you how can you start a war? You have so much money on the line, so much trade, trillions of dollars of trade and money on the line. You're not going to fight your neighbor over that kind of money. You're not because you know that the end is going to not justify the means you're going to get destroyed and then there's nothing for either of you so what was the the end goal you know and it takes a while to go back to what you were yeah. economically i mean look where we're at now an inflation crisis which then stemmed into high interest rates to to terrible housing market and it just keeps piling on and on and it's this kind of like i, I don't want to use the word economic chokehold but kind of like like a, a a press for more uh, a push for more for more economic development and in the middle eastern countries like saudi arabia for example should be should go up to israel and say listen we have we have money and we want to improve um the israel palestine conflict and invest in both states um but if you're just going to keep doing this then we're going to continue to uh not recognize you and that's it's, that's the game they want to play. What is the United States going to do? Go back Israel. But would they want to lose out on, South, on Middle Eastern partners? The United States does not want to afford that. So we live in a time where, where both money and, and weapons are just... How do I say this? It's, it's kind of like where money has just been the, the overall persuader uh, of everything. And money has been the persuader for, for many, many years now. And it's going to continue being a persuasion tool um, as kind of the world develops. Further. Absolutely. But that's that's all I got. Um, nope, if you got anything else? All right. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening in to this week's topic of the week. Um, we hope you enjoyed this little polit uh, hypothetical uh, episode. We kind of love doing these hypothetical ones. Um, but, yeah, so stay tuned for the next uh, topic of the week.